Greetings and welcome to another episode of not only Canadian History X, but From John to Justin. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, next week I have a new podcast coming called Coast to Coast, which looks at the building of the Transcontinental Railway. It's available on all podcast platforms. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. I've had a lot of big names on the podcast. Tommy Chong, Fred Penner, Peter Mansbridge, Dr. Roberto Bondar, and many more. But I would say that this guest is probably one of my biggest, and the first Prime Minister that I've ever had on the show. Today I'm speaking with former Prime Minister, our 19th Prime Minister, the first female Justice Minister, the first female Minister of Defence, and the first female Prime Minister, Kim Campbell. We talk about her life, career, and much more, and I really hope you enjoy it. So let's get right to it. The first question is, I guess a lot of people don't know that uh, you used to be on CBC, you used to be a junior reporter. Uh, there's a video online of you interviewing Alberta Slim and an elephant. How did that come about that you were, uh, that you were a reporter for CBC back in uh, the 50s? Well, that was when I was about 10, the CBC wanted to create a kid's show called Junior TV Club. And so they asked in, in CBC Vancouver, so they asked the Vancouver schools to suggest children, I guess, within a particular age group that they thought might, uh, might do this. So I went and did an audition and I was one of the ones chosen to do it. So I was chosen, uh, it was like a, what they called a magazine style show, it had different sections. So I did interviews in the talent section and I can remember interviewing George Zuckerman who was a famous bassoonist. I mean, that's one of the ones I remember. Um, but I also chaired a panel discussion. So here were we, like, you know, 10-year-old kids uh, having panel discussions on, you know, whether we should be able to control our own TV or how much allowance we should get. But that's, it, it ran for nine weeks, and I don't think I was particularly wonderful, and I don't think it was, it, it, it was, it was something that would launch me into uh, a career. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, what, where did the interest in politics come from? Uh, was that from an early age or something you kind of grew into? Well, it was a, 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 an outcome of a series of views and interests that I had from very young. You know, my parents were both good citizens and voted, but neither of them was at all political or involved in a party or anything. And I grew up in Vancouver, which wasn't certainly at the heart of national politics. Um, but both my parents were in uniform in World War II, and I was born after the war. I was born in 47. But for my generation, World War II was a hugely important event. It was, you know, on the radio, the TV, the movies, the books. It was, you know, this enormous cataclysm that had been uh, probably one of the greatest events of, of, of human history. Mm -hmm. So uh, because both my parents were in uniform, my dad was in the army and my mother horrified her mother by enlisting in the Navy when women were allowed in finally in 1943 and becoming a wireless operator and tracking the transmissions of German U-boats. Um, I felt that obviously this was something that, that girls could do. And because I was so interested in the war and horrified by it, and I used to really, uh, then I read a lot of books about the Holocaust. You know, I used to think, you know, each one of these people was like me, that each death, each person was a human being like me with a, you know, a consciousness and an awareness and, and the notion that that, that could be snuffed out uh, mm -hmm. 
was really quite horrifying to me. And I wanted to be part of something that could help that not to happen again. So politics wasn't the first thing I thought to do at all. In fact, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be the first woman secretary general of the UN. But as I got older, um, I began to realize that a lot of the decisions that are made that affect these things are made in the political arena. And, um, and I thought it might be something worth doing. So I started small and uh, found that I had the temperament for it. And incidentally, that's an interesting thing to discover because not everybody does. I mean, sometimes you just, you take the criticism too seriously or you don't understand. I had been a Soviet specialist. So by the time I got into elected politics, um, I, I saw the fact that people could yell at me as, as something good because in the Soviet Union, you couldn't yell at <laughs> your politician. <laughs> Uh, so I guess it was sort of something that evolved from my desire to live a life bigger than my own, just my own life. I didn't want to just have a totally self-regarding life. I wanted to be involved in something that would be bigger. And for my parents, that involved uh, fighting in the war uh, or being part of the war. And for me, happily, it could you know, involve finding some useful role in the peace. Um, and you mentioned uh, the Soviet Union. What kind of culture shock was that to, to go from Canada to spending some time in the, in the Soviet Union? It was very interesting, Craig. I went, um, I was doing my graduate work at the London School of Economics and uh, my research materials were in the West, but I wanted to have a feel for what I was writing about. So I was able to arrange with the Canada Council a three month study tour there in 1972. And you know, people always say that you go, the people would go to the Soviet Union and they come away with whatever it is they wanted to come away with. So if they were sort of left-wing socialists who wanted to have, you know, the, the value of the Soviet Union confirmed, that's what they'd see. Um, I don't know if I went with those kind of preconditions, but I, there were a number of strong impressions that I came away with. First of all, very nice people, very nice people, and a lot of wonderful experiences. You know, I got to go to the Bolshoi Ballet. I got to go to the Kirov Ballet. I got to see, you know, ballet and opera and things like that because when I was a foreigner, and so I got access to things that normal Soviet citizens couldn't get, and I was aware of that. Um, but I came away with a sense, incredible sense of waste, um, waste of resources, waste of people's time. Everything was organized to be... Uh, as inconvenient as possible, even to go grocery shopping was made as difficult as possible. And when you think of the burden that Soviet women carried, I mean, it was a, you know, a quadruple insult. So the, the waste, but also just to be in a society where people were afraid. Um, you know, I met a lot of people who were fairly privileged, but it was very interesting to observe the constraint and the restraint that people felt in dealing with a foreigner. Um, so I felt that, that this was a country that had extraordinary people and all sorts of richness in terms of, uh, you know, art and culture and science and the beauty of the countryside, but that it was just um, a waste of human potential and incredibly soul destroying. And at those days, we used to talk about the internal immigration in the Soviet Union, that people who would simply withdraw often into alcohol. And I remember going to the University of Moscow, uh, some, actually some African students took me to the University of Moscow. And that was interesting too, hearing their story <laughs> of what it was like to be a black student in, in Moscow, not fun. But you, you sit there in the cafeteria and there were young students with tumblers of cognac. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I went you know, to university and people went out and, you know, drank and had too many beers and all that kind of stuff. But I, that kind of almost nihilistic 
uh, alcohol consumption really struck me. Um, so I guess it was, it, it was a very interesting culture shock, um, but it also helped me to learn to distinguish between people and their regimes. Uh, and when you're someplace where people have no choice, the regime, it's interesting that many of them still um, develop and express quite remarkable human characteristics. And that is again, why it's such a waste. You think if you could take the constraints off, mm -hmm. uh, what world beaters these people would be. And then uh, when you started to get involved in politics, you kind of started at the, at the grassroots uh, uh, level, and then you uh, moved up into provincial politics. Was, was that kind of a, a good training ground to start? I believe it was at the school board and then to provincial politics before you got to federal politics rather than diving right into federal politics? Yeah, and it all kind of happened accidentally. My first husband uh, was a math professor who served uh, on the Vancouver school board for three terms. And um, at the time I was then teaching at the university and he decided he wanted to run for city council and his colleagues came to me and said, well, would you run for school board? And at that time I thought, well, you know, it's interesting. I've given some thought to politics. I don't know if I have the temperament for it. Um, and um, and as, a, as somebody who's teaching the products of the school system, I have some views. So I said, yes, but then they were horrified that I wanted to use my own name. Campbell's my maiden name. And I never used my married name professionally. You're part of it because my first husband's name was Davinsky and I was a Soviet specialist. And if you had a sort of Slavic sounding name, people assumed you came from, you know, uh, already a constituency of people who, who had a different point of departure than somebody named Campbell would have. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I said, well, no, but I won't run. I don't use my married name and I'm not going to just use it to get myself elected. So they all were very cold faced. So anyway, my husband ran for, for city council and I ran for school board and we both got elected, but I actually got more votes than he did. So <laughs> what was great was that, you know, you learn a lot. First of all, you learn when you run for office that, you know, you think you know everything and you're out and you're criticizing your predecessors and you're doing all this. And then you get into office and you discover it's a lot more complicated than you thought. So the first thing it does is it sort of, you know, boots, gives you gives a good boot to your hubris and you start to learn to, that um, that making public policy is complicated, that there are all sorts of conflicting but very reasonable uh, interests and objectives. Not everybody needs the same things. Um, and you know, I, I think one of the things about municipal politics is because you don't go anywhere else to serve your constituents, you're right there kind of nose to nose with them. It creates a very good set of political instincts because you recognize that real flesh and blood human beings are affected by what you do. You also learn how valuable it is to listen to people and to seek out uh, advice and um, just an understanding of people's realities. Um, that, 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 that's a very important thing not to assume that you know, or even that a group of disconnected experts, it's not like I have against expertise, I don't, but um, it was just, it was a very interesting place to develop my political instincts and reflexes. And I learned a great deal. Um, and, and again, in, in Vancouver, the, we did have political parties, but, but it, the school board wasn't as partisan. In other words, it wasn't uh, you know, mind boggling to join, you know, to have a unanimous decision or to, you know, to, to vote across party lines, et cetera. So I think in terms of my education as a politician, it was very helpful. And I also learned you know, I often say that, that one reason why politicians are often quite uh, optimistic about human nature, I mean, assuming they actually inter interact with people, is because you meet 
remarkable people living really heroic lives under very difficult circumstances. And one of the things on the school board is we had lots of interesting contentious issues, you know, French immersion and I mean, all sorts of, you know, good stuff. But among the, the concerns were, were, were concerns for special education and people who had children who had special needs. And, you know, you'd meet these parents who had, had children who had special needs and how passionate the parents were about getting the very best experience for their child. And they'd come to see you to, to ask your advice and your help in, in making that possible. And I would think to myself, this is my problem Wednesday from four to five. It's their issue 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And how brave and strong and resilient they are in dealing with what is often a kind of you know, difficult school system and difficult society that isn't always helpful to people whose children have, have special needs. And it just really, I felt it was a privilege to serve. And that, that view always stayed with me too, that it's real people who need your help and, uh, and not just the help, but who have you know, concerns or are often excellent ideas. And you realize that if you can think of yourself as kind of an, a partner uh, and a collaborator with those that you serve, uh, first of all, you get a lot more done, but mm -hmm. it's a, a healthy frame of mind, I think to have as a politician. Um, so you mentioned that there's not very much in terms of partisan politics when you're on the school board. Uh, so was it a big change to when you went to provincial politics and there were much more uh, clearly defined party lines? Yeah, I think so. And of course the, the school board didn't function as a parliamentary system, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so the notion of uh, government and opposition doesn't really exist there. So yes, going into provincial politics was different. And of course, one of the things you also realize when you, you run for public life, and I say this a lot to people who, who talk about, you know, I wanna go into politics, but I don't really have a party, and, and I didn't really have a party either. And I said, you will, I will say to people, you will never find a party where everybody's your soulmate. It just doesn't work that way. You know, Canada is too big, people are too contrary. So what you need to do is find a party where the sort of the center of gravity is something you're comfortable with. And there will be people in it who won't necessarily share your views. And the question is, will those differences create uh, insurmountable uh, um, barriers for you in continuing? Or will those be things, I mean, for example, uh, when I became Minister of Justice, when I, when I became a member of Parliament, a lot of the, the, my fellow caucus members didn't share my views on things, whether it was on abortion, gun control, gay rights, those easy mm -hmm. issues. Um, but many of them realized that they weren't really on the winning side of the arguments, that the, that the vast majority of Canadians were in a different place. And so that teaches another lesson. First of all, so you find a party where you're comfortable, but knowing that you're not going to agree with everybody, but also understanding that everybody who goes to parliament is sent by Canadians to go there. Mm -hmm. And they have as much right to speak for their constituents as you do. And so you need to have that kind of respect. Now you may disagree and you may think that what they are supporting is you know, bad and wrong and dangerous and you know, appalling, whatever. I mean, <laughs> but the point is that none of, you know, and the fact you know, that the prime minister made me the minister of justice, that didn't give me a blank check to make mm -hmm. policy according to my own views. So I think the working in a partisan political environment where you have to be part of a team whose members you haven't chosen, um, where you're not going to agree with everybody, 
And if you get to the point where that center of gravity moves and you're not comfortable working with those people, then you can leave and go to a different party. I mean, that's the freedom that you have. But it does treat, teach you the discipline of respect, how important it is to respect and what that leads you to do if you genuinely respect other people and the fact that they may not think like you is first of all, you'll learn to listen, mm -hmm. uh, which can save you a lot of disaster. And, and you will also learn to try and find common ground, to try and find win-win situations as much as you can. So often as justice minister, when I was dealing with difficult issues, if some of my colleagues weren't very supportive of what I was trying to do, but I would try to find ways that things that were important to them could be incorporated um, so that they understood that I listened and that I valued what they said. They weren't necessarily gonna win the big picture. Uh, I couldn't necessarily deliver that to them. Um, not just because of my personal views, but because of where the broader range of the party was and where Canadians were. But where I think you also have to understand sometimes the anguish of people who lose an argument politically. That's something that they care about a great deal. It's not always easy. No. And, and don't be a jerk like, you know, oh, <laughs> no, no, understand that. this is hard for you, I understand. Um, but you, you, know, you did a great job of mm -hmm. articulating your views and doing what the people who sent you here asked you to do. And I really respect that. So that was a, you know, a very useful education. Um, obviously, the, uh, being the first uh, female Prime Minister of Canada is kind of overshadows a lot of things, but you were also the first female uh, Justice Minister and Minister of Defence. Did that kind of present certain challenges uh, dealing with some members of Parliament uh, who are maybe more old school uh, as you're coming into this very prominent roles uh, in Parliament, especially because you were elected only a few years ago or a few years yeah. previous? Sure, <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd had a political career in British Columbia and I had a profile, which is what helped me to get, get elected in a very tough election. But um, yes, and, and which is why I tried to be collaborative and, uh, and respectful. Um, and, and so, for example, when you know, Brian Mulroney Nassi was stepping down, over half the caucus declared their support for me. So I think I had been successful in doing that. But also when I became the first woman minister of justice, I felt it was important um, to honor that. You know, and incidentally, I mean, I think Brian Mulroney uh, was very supportive of putting women in positions they hadn't been in before. I mean, this wasn't sort of an accident that he appointed a woman and, and I wasn't supposed to mention it. <laughs> On the contrary, you know, this was something that I think, you know, he took pride in appointing good strong women into, into portfolios. So I wanted in some way to honor the fact that I was the first woman. <clears throat> so I convened a national conference on women law and the administration of justice in 1991 in Vancouver, which was very generative of a lot of interesting new policy ideas and, um, and acknowledged the fact that uh, I was the first minister who was looking at things from a feminine perspective, uh, not just a feminist perspective, but a female perspective and asking different questions. And it was interesting because a number of judges attended this conference because if you're the minister, they know you will respect their independence so they can come and listen and participate, but they're not going to be in any way compromised. But at the end of it, a number of them said, you know, I thought before I came, I was pretty liberal on these issues and I realized I didn't know anything. You know, we had gone out around the country and asked people, different people around the country, if, if we could have this conference, uh, what would you want us to talk about? So it was a very rich agenda. 
So uh, uh, I think that, you know, that gave me the opportunity. Uh, and I think to the government to acknowledge that, you know, the government was willing to, uh, you know, really uh, respect and act on the, uh, you know, the importance of inclusion of women. So that, you know, it wasn't just, you know, you put a woman and she's in the picture when you take a picture of cabinet, but, you know, that and three bucks will buy you a latte kind of thing. So <laughs> it was uh, an opportunity to try and to try and make a difference. But I also wasn't a one issue minister. You know, I wasn't, uh, that wasn't the only thing that was important to me. So, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, women, we learn that you have to be tactful and you have to be judicious in how you do these things. And, and it's certainly true that there were some, you know, old garbage. One, one of my colleagues had a, a, a candidate, he had a candidate in his province that he said would be an excellent candidate for the judiciary. And actually we had a process where people could apply and be vetted, whatever. And he said, but I guess I'll have to tell him, tell him he should get a sex change operation. <laughs> I mean, at the time I appointed about 125 superior court judges in my time as justice minister. And to be a candidate, you have to have been called to the bar for 10 years. And within the Canadian legal profession at that time, uh, the number who were uh, of women, the women who were recalled were 10 years called were about 12 and a half percent, an eighth of the profession. And 25% of my appointments were women. So I disproportionately appointed women um, two to one, but still three quarters of my appointments were men. But it was important in my view to get women into the pipelines and I never sacrificed quality. It meant for some women, perhaps they didn't get as much time uh, uh, to get experience as they might have liked. But even the current Chief Justice of Alberta, she was my appointment and she's still there. She's getting ready to retire. She <laughs> was quite a pup when she was appointed. But, but um, you know, so, so it, it's all a matter of perspective. I mean, I was appointing men three to one, but if you were used to, you know, men being appointed nine to one, um, that might have rankled. Um, now, as Prime Minister, I think you did something that no other Prime Minister has done. Um, you on Canada Day, you started the day in Newfoundland and then you went to Ottawa and then you finished the day in Vancouver. So that's like a huge day, huge amount of distance to travel. Um, you know, what was that day like? Was it just obviously you probably slept on the plane a bit, but was it uh, really great to you know be meeting all these Canadians uh, as prime minister? Was, yeah, it was magical because in Newfoundland they start, you know, that's where the sun comes up on the country. Mm -hmm. So you're up in, uh, uh, suddenly the, the name of the, uh, the the peak that you're you're on in, in St. John's looking out at Cape Spear you're up and Signal Hill Signal Hill sorry getting old and demented here so you, you start <laughs> Signal Hill watching you know at five in the morning watching as the sun comes up on the country and uh, looking out at Cape Spear which is the easternmost point of North America so it really gives you this wonderful feeling and there's a dear little, a dear choir of little children singing the Ode to Newfoundland. And I had never heard the Ode to Newfoundland before. I have heard it many times since. And I once was a speaker on a ship that was traveling to Newfoundland and I made everybody on the ship learn the Ode to Newfoundland because they were going to go ashore and there were, some of them were going to circumnavigate the island. I said, you got to know the Ode to Newfoundland. <laughs> but it was so sweet. And these little voices, we love you. And it was just darling and 
it was very sweet. And but the other thing too was it was quite cold. Even though it was July the first, there was that wind whipping in off the Atlantic. <laughs> so at one point they offered me a gift. So we have this gift. It's a cape made of Grenfell cloth, which was a cloth that was designed for Sir Wilfred Grenfell, one of his friends designed. It's very, it's very densely packed cotton, I think, but it's a warm part. And uh, so they, they presented, I said, oh, very warm. I said, oh, that's interesting. And so normally somebody gives you a gift when you're a minister or prime minister and you go, thank you, you pass it off to somebody. But this time I said, oh, I must have a look at this. <laughs> oh, isn't that lovely? And I put it over my shoulder. Yes, it is very warm. So there was I toasting warm in my cape and grenfell cloth. And uh, Clyde Wells and Brian Peckford <laughs> were there. We're all standing there freezing their little patootsies off. Was, oh, well, they get off the Atlantic. So it was really quite quite fun. And I still have that beautiful Grenfell Cloth cape, <laughs> tell you. And it is toasty warm and it's really, it's really great. So then we went to Ottawa to do the uh, uh, <clears throat> the the events on Parliament Hill um, at noon. And that was lovely. I mean, you know, I mean that, that's a very special experience as a prime minister to be there, although it's really the governor general's show. So the governor general and, and his vibrant and great decision drove up in their horse-drawn carriage and whatever. It was very sweet. But it was very special. And then uh, we went across the, the river to Hull and uh, attended a few things there and then got back on a plane and went to Vancouver. Some wags said, oh, we should stop in Winnipeg. And I said, we might throw you out over Winnipeg. But <laughs> so we got to Vancouver in time for the sunset ceremony. Um, and it was a lovely day in Vancouver. So and in the Vancouver Harbor, it was very beautiful. And so there was a series of uh, little ceremonies there. So it was just very special to watch the sunrise on the country and the sunset on the country on its birthday. So um, the short answer to your question is it was wonderful. Um, did you find yourself ever having to kind of pinch yourself? You, you uh, 10 years previous, you're on a school board, 10 years later, you're prime minister. Uh, was it kind of very surprising how, in many ways, how quickly you, you progressed, you know, through through the, I guess, the ranks of, of uh, politics from, from school board all the way up to prime minister in, in only 10 years? Well, it only seems fast if uh, you don't expect a woman to do it, I think. I mean, Pierre Trudeau had never held elected office. Mm -hmm. And after one year as a parliamentary secretary and one year as a minister, he was elected leader of the party. So, but nobody describes that as meteoric. Um, I had served, been elected at all three levels of government and serving each one. So yes, it was fast in that sense. I don't, I don't mean to, to, to poo-poo that, but there are lots of other people who uh, you know, come in with, uh, with less experience. And, and the reason why I say this is because when you are a non-prototypical person in a role, um, people are always looking for ways to validate their sense of discomfort that you're there. And you will always be uh, subject to higher expectations and you won't get the benefit of the doubt. And during the election campaign in, uh, or might even been the leadership in 1993, uh, I was constantly being referred to as a rookie. I think it was after I, was, I became the leader. And finally, one day I said to uh, one of my, uh, my staff, I said, will you just do a little bit of research uh, how many years in cabinet the other people who've been prime minister served? Well, it turns out that of the 18 men who preceded me as cabinet ministers, only eight, as prime minister, excuse me, only eight had more cabinet experience than I had. So I was actually in the more experienced half of people who had become prime minister. 
uh, Brian Mulroney had never run a line ministry. Joe Clark had never run a line ministry. You know, these are lots of people who had never, uh, you know, as I say, Pierre Trudeau had been a minister for a year. Um, there were lots of people who, who had less experience, but if you are not a prototypical candidate, then, then you're, you need to justify it. And it's often said that men get, get appointed or chosen or elected on their future prospects. Women get appointed or elected on what they've already done, which means they, it's never enough and you always have to do more. So um, it was <laughs> an interesting perspective. Um, and then uh, after your time as prime minister, uh, you become the consul to Los Angeles. So you're, you're still, you know, very involved in politics and, and uh, you know, it's not a case of after prime minister, you retire. Um, and then you're, you kind of start shifting, uh, you start doing new things. And um, tell me a bit about the production of Noah's Ark. Well, first of all, I should say, I didn't become consul general right away. And in fact, I had told uh, the clerk of the Privy Council to please ask, tell the Prime Minister not to offer me a job uh, unless I indicated that I wanted one. And so the next thing I knew, the Prime Minister was calling me and asking me if I wanted to a certain diplomatic appointment. And I said, well, no, I can't do that. I have a contract to write a book. Well, you could write the book. I said, well, no, I think you have to work. So anyway, to make a long story short, after a whole lot of, of toing and froing, I agreed in 1996. So this was three years after I was out of office to go to be Consul General in Los Angeles. And the reason why I changed my mind about doing something was because I actually thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to be out of the country, not too far away, because in fact, there was the Somalia inquiry happening and I didn't think I could be too far away. But that it would just make it easier for me. I wouldn't be, you know, I'm, if I'm out of politics, then I'm sort of out of the, the line of fire. The other thing was that it was something that I could actually make a lot of use of my experience. And first of all, uh, Los Angeles is a very celebrity oriented culture. So having a former prime minister as consul general was actually very good. I mean, people accept my invitations and I could do things and I got many chances to communicate with people to speak. And actually the other diplomats there thought it was great. They thought it enhanced that as, as a posting because actually it's a very important posting and the Los Angeles mission is bigger than many of our embassies because it's a, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of important policy stuff mm -hmm. happening. So, uh, so that was very it, it was very interesting, and it, it gave me a chance to kind of step back and do uh, and do other things. And I'm grateful. I mean, Prime Minister Cretton was really very, very nice to me, but I wasn't looking for it. Um, and you know, maybe he worried that I I couldn't earn a living. I don't know, but um, I mean, I could. But still, it was nice of him to uh, to feel that. Uh, I should do that. And of course, it also meant that I was out of the political arena too. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, but when I met, uh, when I met the man who's now my husband, Hershey Felder, um, he was in the process of, uh, he, he was, was seen at a, doing a concert by members of the concert or staff who came and said, there's this amazing young Canadian musician and you should get him to do a concert for you. So, and then they said to him, our new consul general was the former prime minister candidate, you should do a concert for her. So the first fall I was there in 96, um, that Christmas uh, on, uh, on January the 5th, he did a wonderful concert at the residence and we invited our A-list and he just did this beautiful one man show and knocked everybody's socks off. And it was unlike usually in Los Angeles, nobody wanted to go home. <laughs> <It was> a, <laughs> So, so the, he sort of put me on the map as a hostess and we, and we became friends. And he was writing uh, a, a treatment of, of Noah's Ark that he agreed to do it for a benefit for a children's museum. 
and he was kind of stuck. And I had written lyrics uh, for years. I had a partnership, a songwriting partnership with a friend. And, uh, and I had also, you know, written and directed the shows we put on at law school, which is not really the same as those are. But anyway, I think about talking about it, collaborating. And, um, you know, I gave him some ideas about how to think about it. And anyway, so I wound up contributing some lyrics to the project. But what's interesting is that working with somebody on a, a shared creative project is a great way to get to know them. And, you know, I thought Bridget was too young for me. I was not interested in younger men. And then I began to think, oh, I must be getting old if younger men are old enough to be interesting. Because <laughs> uh, I really am. But, but the thing was that, you know, he, I could see him. He had incredible discipline, very smart, incredible discipline, and just an amazing work ethic and an amazing gift to bring people together. And so when Noah's Ark was finally uh, produced for two evenings, it was very successful, accomplished what it needed to, but it was in the process of creating it that he and I, uh, I guess, fell in love. He always says that it was love at first sight when he came to visit me at my house before he did the concert for me. I, I'm not sure about that. I thought it was a very important meeting because he was sort of unlike anybody I'd known and I found him you know, really quite, uh, you know, interesting and, and uh, kind of captivating. But anyway, the, the problem was, of course, you know, I don't, I don't have the luxury of a private life. I mean, I am a public mm -hmm. person. And so the, I kept thinking, you know, the last thing in the world I need is to get involved with somebody a lot younger than I am. And everybody will think, oh, poor Kim Campbell, she lost the election and now she's gone middle-aged crazy and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> when I knew that that there was nothing of the sort. And the interesting thing is that one of the people who was most supportive of this and who thought it was really great was my sister who had come down to Los Angeles to see Noah's Ark. And I was away when she arrived. So she spent some time just with Hershey and she, she knew there was something going on between us before we acknowledged it. But she at that time said, you know, what she was, she said to me several years later, thank God you finally find yourself a genius. Because, <laughs> um, Anyway, we've been very happy ever since. I mean, and now we're sort of boring. You know, ah. And um, uh, we've had a very happy life together. But at the time it was, you know, it was, that was hard for me because I just knew, uh, especially knowing, you know, all of the people, uh, you know, back in Canada, all of the, the press and stuff, you know, for whom it was important to continue to validate their unwillingness to take me seriously as prime minister. You know, if, I mean, if, if I can be proven to be some kind of uh, weird person, then, you know, see, we were right, you know, not to give her the benefit of the doubt. But um, anyway, living well is the best revenge. And uh, <laughs> I'm speaking to you in my Italian castle. Uh, my <laughs> husband, it's really funny because people often assume that because I was prime minister, you know, that I, you know, I have money. Well, you know, I keep saying, no, I was actually, I wasn't corrupt. I actually was an honest politician. So I have <laughs> money that I've earned and, you know, and I don't come from a rich family. So uh, everything that we have, we, we work for, um, but, uh, but Hershey has been incredibly successful and has grown remarkably as an artist and a businessman. And, uh, uh, and it's an, another very interesting Canadian because he was born and raised in Montreal. Um, how does uh, Canadian politics differ today versus uh, the early 1990s and even the, the late 1980s? Well, you know, Craig, I think one of the biggest factors is social media. Uh, when I was, uh, when I was in, in cabinet, I think uh, Pierre, uh, I'm sorry, um, 
Perrin Beatty, gosh, I'm reading. Perrin <laughs> Beatty was the only one of my cabinet colleagues who had a laptop. I mean, this was just unheard of. Remember, we were government, you know, we were defeated in 93, so you go back and didn't do anything. But, uh, and, and I mean, nasty press have always been around. I mean, even if you go back to the 18th century when newspapers started, I mean, there were scurrilous broadsheets, et cetera, et cetera. But I think social media and the, um, the intrusiveness of media and partnered with the internet is very different. I mean, I can remember when we were in, I was in cabinet with Brian Mulroney and there was a couple of scandals. There was a scandal in British Columbia with a member of the cabinet whose car phone conversations had been hacked into by a reporter. And, uh, and there was also uh, you know, another situation back in Ottawa where somebody had been had the car conversations overlooked when they were driving to Montreal and speaking to somebody, to a lady who wasn't their wife. So the prime minister said to us, never have a conversation on your car. Always assume that there's a reporter sitting, never have a conversation you wouldn't have with, with, with a reporter mm -hmm. sitting next to you. So we were beginning to feel the, the reduced expectations about privacy. There'd already been a kind of, you know, destruction of the notion of off the record. And, and I remember when I became a minister, uh, my first year of staff, you know, none of my staff were allowed to go to the press club. And there was no such thing as off the record. And you didn't go and you didn't gossip with reporters and, you know, they aren't your friend. I mean, their job is to, to write stories. And that was before the press were in such a financially difficult situation uh, where, the, where the business model of the press uh, had, was not so challenged as it, as it became. I mean, it started being challenged by television and television news, but then with the internet and social media, we all know that story. So I think for politicians, it's very much harder now to, uh, and, and the fact that the narrative conversation about public life is so fragmented that, um, you know, at least if you can all come together and yell at each other and, and show your different views, the public has some sense of what the choices are. But if you have echo chambers of people who all believe the same thing, then the fact that there might be another perspective that's actually quite interesting and well-informed and humane and whatever, uh, you may never know because you never listen to those people. Uh, so I think that makes public life very hard, really hard now. Um, obviously being prime minister is a massive accomplishment. Uh, but is there something, anything else, even in your political career, that you see as a major uh, accomplishment or something you're very proud of uh, uh, during your career? Well, I think for me, what was important was that every time I had a political office, even if it was trustee on the Vancouver School Board, I always tried to make something of it. In other words, I didn't just want to get elected to be elected and go to meetings. I wanted, I thought, what could I do here? So when I was on the school board in Vancouver, I helped, for example, to bring in the International Baccalaureate Program. Vancouver School just gives an example. And I think that was a very positive addition. It gave a whole series of choices to students who wanted to enrich their experience. For teachers, it gave them an opportunity to, to use some of them had much, many more skills than they needed for their high school level classes. So I thought it was, it was a good thing. Um, when I was in the provincial legislature, I, you know, I, I was actually asked to chair a task force on heritage conservation. And our 
report became the basis of a white paper on the first legislation for heritage conservation in British Columbia, because we were still a pretty young province and we weren't really uh, focused on the fact that we were losing a lot of our built heritage and the things that, that, would, that, uh, that we might value later when we realized that they were gone. Um, you know, plus, I mean, there are other things that I, I did as well. Um, and then when I, when I went to Ottawa and I became Minister of State for Indian Affairs and Northern Development, well, as it happened, when I had worked for Bill Bennett, um, the only political staffing uh, job I'd ever had, I'd been asked to review the situation with respect to comprehensive land claims and advise the Premier, you know, what he should do. Well, as, before I got a chance to advise him, he announced he was stepping down. Uh, but I had done some of the work. So then I find myself in the, you know, as the junior minister in Indian affairs, the first person from British Columbia to have been there for several decades. And I said, hoo-ha, I know what we should be doing. We should be uh, reinstating the comprehensive land claims negotiation process because it really is in the federal government's court. And I got some resistance from the department who said, well, you know, British Columbia benefits more and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, look, as far as I can see, we do a lot of things for different parts of the country that benefit more uh, than others, but that's what it means to be a government. And it's, it's our responsibility to break this logjam. And it was hurting British Columbia to have uncertainty about, about land tenure. So that was the beginning of the process that created the comprehensive land claims process. Now, has it achieved great things? No, it's, it's, probably, it's difficult. I mean, the treaty commission uh, is operating, but uh, you know, I must confess that it hasn't been you know, a hugely uh, dramatically successful thing, but I think it was an important uh, part of an important process to get the federal government much more focused on its obligations and roles with respect to First Nations people. And then when I became justice minister, again, wanting to uh, you know, honor and um, acknowledge the fact that I was the first woman, that it meant something. What did it mean to have a woman uh, in, in a position. Well, she asked different questions and did different things. And uh, one of the things that I did differently was in consultation. And the second woman to be Justice Minister, Anne McClellan, uh, became great friends with, with me uh, when I went to Edmonton to create the Peter Lawhey Leadership College. And we saw a lot of each other. And um, although we were different parties, we were very, very uh, kindred spirits. And she said one time when we were on a panel together that when she became Justice Minister, she was briefed on the Campbell mode of consultation. Uh, which was much more, much broader and more extensive than had traditionally been the case. And so when I was doing the, the rape shield law, you know, I uh, consulted with women in the sex trade and, you know, organizations of women of color, I mean, different, different constituencies that had not normally been involved in the conversations. So I thought it was interesting for her to, to well, first of all, to let me know that this was something that the, the Department of Justice still remembered and called it the Campbell mode of consultation. And it was one that she, that she chose to, uh, to adopt for herself. So every time I did something, I tried to use whatever powers I had to do something positive. Now, sometimes the agendas are established for you because, I mean, for example, when Mark Lapine went into a called Polytechnique and murdered 14 women engineering students, shouting, you're all feminists, that had a significant impact on the salience of gun control as uh, an agenda item in the Canadian justice portfolio. So sometimes, issues arise, uh, you know, for reasons beyond your control. But to the extent that I could choose to do things, I always thought, what could I do, not necessarily to leave a mark, but not, but not just to have sort of sat here, to have, to have used the value of, of the opportunity I've been given to lead in a, in a particular area 
to, uh, to move issues forward where possible. And so I think if you ask me what I brought, I mean, there's a lot of things that when I reorganized the ministries of the government, mm-hmm. you know, I felt that that was, uh, you know, quite a coherent and, and, and useful way of, of uh, thinking about our ministries for the 21st century. Um, so I would say that I'm, I'm just proud of the fact that I didn't just, I didn't see being elected as something to do so that I would have a title and I'd be a minister and I'd drive around a car and i go to camp. I always thought, what could I do in whatever short period of time I might have here that would uh, make things better? And, uh, and I looked for opportunities to do that. And then uh, just my last question is, since you were prime minister, every, every province except for four have had a female premier, uh, some multiple, um, but we still haven't had another female prime minister. Uh, why, why haven't we had that yet? And when do you think we'll, we'll you know, finally get another female prime minister? Well, I always say to people that for, to be a, a woman prime minister, you have to be elected leader of a party that can form a government. So parties that don't really have a chance to form a government are often more willing to choose women as leaders. Um, but if you can form a government, you know, it's about power and people want it and they don't give it up easily. And many of the more established political parties have very male dominated power structures. And, uh, you know, there's, also, there's a whole number of things, but I think since I was prime minister, I, I counted one time that there had been about 15 changes of leadership in parties that could conceivably form a government. And I actually included the NDP in that. And in none of those did it, was a woman, uh, you know, even on, you know, on, on a second ballot. Um, and I think what a lot of people have realized is that, that what I did was actually pretty remarkable to be seen as a candidate and to be elected a candidate, not only of a party that could form a government, but a party that was in government. And I sometimes see people write about me, well, she was appointed or she was just said nobody else. My colleagues wanted to be leader. Uh, you know, my becoming leader was not something that everybody said, oh, well, let's let Kim do it. No, other senior cabinet ministers really wanted to be leader and they just didn't have the support. And I remember when Perrin Beattie, who had, I think, wanted to be prime minister since he was two and he's a lovely guy, isn't it? Going on to uh, you know do lots of you know useful things, but he said, um, "I'm not going to run because it's clear the party wants Kim, and the only way I could run would be to run a campaign that would damage her, and that would be you know not really very helpful." So he finally, when he decided that he wasn't going to run, um, but it wasn't because he didn't want to, and for others, and I don't know whether he had attempted to raise money and you know whether any of that had affected it or not. I mean, I, I really don't know. But it was a very interesting time. And I had been able, uh, particularly I think as justice minister, uh, to deal with issues that were very hard, but also within my own party to deal with very difficult issues in a way that enabled me to build support and respect, not the opposite. And it was interesting because one of my colleagues, John Reimer, uh, came to see me, he was the head of the Evangelical Caucus, and he said, if you become leader, will you treat us with the same respect you did when you were Justice Minister? And I said, same person I always was, of course. He said, because we'd like to support you, which was quite extraordinary, given that I was um, you know, a pro-choice, pro-gay rights, uh, urban person from Vancouver Centre. 
So a lot of the people who supported me were not people who were my soulmates, but they trusted me. Um, and, and I suppose maybe some of them thought that I could pull the rabbit out of the hat, given the fact that they knew that, you know, Brian Mulroney had become very unpopular uh, and it was something new. But I don't think it was just that. I think it was a combination of things and that, um, you know, the role that I had played had, had built uh, support and confidence in, in people. But, the, the, you know, it, it all happened at, at the end of, I mean, if you imagine that we were already halfway into the fifth year of our mandate before the prime minister announced he was stepping down. So talking about ye old clock ticking, you know, and, yeah. you know, at the end of the five years, the old constitutional hook comes out and drags you <laughs> off the stage. So uh, there wasn't really for whomever uh, mm -hmm. would be chosen to succeed him. There, uh, there was really no time to put a new face on, on a party. And also the, the prime minister decided he wanted a highly contested leadership. When, so instead of being able to plan for governing, um, you know, I had to you know, travel around and, and fight this campaign. And I was minister of defense and the prime minister said that he would regard it as a sign of disloyalty if any minister resigned to run for the leadership. And I'm not sure whether, whether he thought that maybe we would criticize him or something. But the problem was that here was I, as Minister of Defense, trying to balance a very travel intensive portfolio with the need to be absolutely squeaky clean about not using government funds to campaign. And, you know, I managed to avoid that kind of a scandal, but it was a huge uh, extra burden on all of those who were, were working with me. So it was, um, it was not optimal. But having said that, it was wonderful. And I, when I went to U of A to do the Peter Lai Leadership College, I was really uh, deeply touched by the number of women who said to me, uh, first of all, the men who, who, had, who had been very happy to have worked for me, whatever. I, I didn't know how I'd be received in Alberta, but uh, the number of women who said, oh, you know, when you became prime minister, it was so great. And you know, I just, you know, I, I can still remember it. It still meant a lot to them. And the fact that I lost the election did not for them destroy the luster of what it meant to have had a woman there. And I think because a lot of them felt that the defeat in 93 was so much more complicated than, than me, uh, mm -hmm. uh, or even you know, the people I was running with, that we'd had a history, uh, that it was now a five party race that between Preston Manning and Lucien Bouchard, they had both created parties that, that were aimed directly at our vote. Um, and even though neither of them could form a government, and it's hard to believe that people will vote for parties that can't form a government, they do, they're mad enough. So our, our electorate was, I kept the base of it, but the, uh, it was a five-party five race, and there were two new parties that were uh, appealing directly to our support, and I didn't, whether I could ever have done it, I don't know, but there certainly was a time four months after I was sworn in as prime minister to election day to be able to put a new face on a party and uh, turn people's eyes back to us. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think anyone would have been able to do that. But I like to think that having been a woman and been there and done many, done the things, I mean, this is the other thing, if you're prime minister, you're prime minister. You know, you're not, you're not sort of acting prime minister or I'll just do this a little bit. No, you have to do the whole thing. You have to create your cabinet. You have to go to the international meetings. You have to, uh, you know, make decisions. 
And the fact that I was able to do those things uh, successfully, I think uh, is helpful, but I will be very happy to see another um, able woman uh, get a chance at it. And, you know, it'd be ideal if you had uh, all, you know, all the main parties led by women so they could just duke it out based on their philosophies and the, the gender issue would be, would be secondary. Uh, and I'm sure there will be, that, that, that will happen, that will cover time. It's happened in other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, women are leading in many other countries. And Finland has a governing coalition of five parties, all of which are, are led by women. Um, uh, only, only two of which are, are older than 35. So it's not just the, the gender changing, but also the age profile too. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm... I hope you enjoyed that interview. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website. We will find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.